Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Is Britain a racist society? After a year where prejudice, privilege and protest have never been far from the headlines, it's a question that deserves the closest examination. So for the latest instalment of the CapEx podcast, I spoke to Dr. Rakib Essam, an independent researcher and writer who covers ethnicity and cultural issues in the UK. Rakib's also a regular CapEx contributor, and one of his pieces for us was quoted at length in the government's recent Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. I began by asking him just what he made of that controversial report. So obviously, I mean, the most kind of pertinent thing in, in your field recently has been the Commission on Racial Disparities report. And in a strange, I thought I felt like the reaction to it was kind of... <laughs> Oddly predictable in the sense that you knew that uh, the Guardian and various other, you know, outlets would react with outrage at any suggestion that Britain isn't actually institutionalized. Mm. At the same time, people on the right would instinctively say, "Ah, you see, this actually proves that Britain is a wonderfully successful uh, multiracial society, and that all the the kind of BLM claims and so on are." are overblown, whereas probably the reality sits somewhere in between those two poles. I mean, what was your takeaway from the report? Uh, in fact, you're, you're quoted in the report yourself, uh, one of your CapEx pieces. Um, no, so you have yeah. a kind of personal stake in it, I think. No, absolutely. I feel with the report, of what was the one of the key positives was that it challenged the simplistic narratives surrounding a range of economic and social outcomes. Uh, th- this idea that racial and ethnic disparities are ultimately the result of racial and ethnic discrimination is overly simplistic. And I was very clear that the report stated that there are a myriad of social and cultural factors at play in the production of those disparities in modern day Britain. So the report very clearly states the degree of geographical inequality we have in the UK. We are one of the most interregionally imbalanced uh, societies in the industrialized world. Uh, so I'm really glad that regional inequality features a fair bit in the report. Also importantly discusses the impact of family structures 
that's something that's not really talked about when it comes to racial and ethnic disparities. And it almost demonstrates how simplistic and unhelpful the BAME acronym is. So when you're looking at uh, people aged up to 15, dependents aged up to BAME, so black and minority ethnic as a kind of catch-all term for anyone who isn't white. Indeed. And it's very interesting. So you, you look at people aged up to uh, 15 years, looking at the kind of household they belong to. So only 6% of Indian origin dependents belong to lone parent households. That goes up to 63% when it comes to their peers of Black Caribbean origin. So huge gaps there. And I think more generally, we, it, it is really time to embrace the fact that family stability, especially during childhood, has a serious impact on life chances and personal development. Now that may be unfashionable to say in some circles, but that is the reality and there's growing evidence um, of that. And I think, uh, the, the, as you said, that I was mentioned in the report, I, I, I made the point in that CapEx piece that you referred to that family, uh, not just family structures, but also community dynamics uh, being part of a high trust community that that uh, how do you say takes a great deal of care just outside their family, but also the younger people in the wider community that is quite important. You know, keep, yeah. taking an interest in their progression because obviously you don't want to be the person you don't want to be the source of embarrassment in the wider community. You want to be able to tell other people how well you're doing, whether that's a school, college, university, employment. So these are various dynamics at play when we're looking at racial and ethnic disparities. I think it's really important to move away from those simplistic and outmoded orthodoxies surrounding discrimination. Yeah, I remember in the piece you were saying that, you know, you've, even if you went down the shops in your local area when you're growing up, mm. people ask you how you're doing at school and Absolutely. stuff like that. I mean, what, tell us a bit about your own background. So you're from, you're from Luton, is that right? I'm Deej. I've been, you know, I've lived in Luton all my life. Uh, ethnically, I'm of Bangladeshi and Indian Muslim origin. And I guess in a sense, you know, being raised in Luton, which is a working class, a working class, hyper diverse town. I, I have a stake, you could say, when it comes to matters of social cohesion. I, I personally feel that I belong to a neighbourhood where there's a great deal of inter-ethnic solidarity. So I do feel when it comes to the tribal identity politics, which I feel has accelerated on the left, I think it undermines that spirit of social solidarity and almost frag fragments the British working classes, especially in urban areas. And it's something that I've obviously talked about a great deal in the pieces that I've written for CapEx. And yeah. I do feel that it's a serious problem for the left where there's a great deal of emphasis on race, when in reality there are many other factors that we should be focusing on. I've always felt that when it comes to social policy, John, there needs to be a greater focus on family stability and less on racial identity. Because to be honest, it's Britain, you know, for all its flaws, and I've, I've mentioned this in a number of pieces I've written since the report was published, that for all its flaws, Britain is one of the most successful examples of a multi-ethnic democracy. But what's also very important is that Britain is also is quite the world leader when it comes to family breakdown. So it makes sense to me that when it comes to social policy, and if you want to create a more cohesive society, maybe the focus should be more on family structures as opposed to racial identity. I mean, what do you think? I mean, what do you make of last year's massive um, sort of 
racially inspired protests here in the UK, the BLM protests. I mean, they're clearly born of quite genuine feelings on the parts mm. of Britons. I mean, how do you square that with both the report's findings and your own contention, which is shared by a lot of people, that the UK is, mm. broadly speaking, um, one of the more successful, if not a post-racial society, then um, a successful multi-ethnic society? Well, I, th I think that just because it is one that's successful doesn't doesn't mean that there isn't more work to do. There's, there is more work to be done. I think, in a sense, to create a fairer, more cohesive society, it's uh, it, it's something that that is it's it, it's an aspiration that should never end. In a sense, it's that you know striving to be that ever perfect democracy, multiracial democracy. Uh, with the protests, I felt that many of the people involved in the protests were to a degree inspired by what, what is going on in the United States. And I have made the point that the importation of divisive cultural politics from the United States is a problem for the UK from a social cohesion perspective. You see grievances in the United States surrounding law enforcement brutality. And then you see British protesters shouting at British police officers, don't shoot. I think it tells you how nonsensical some of those protests truly were. Now, that's not to say that I, I'm in the business of ridiculing those protests. I think there are improvements to be made, especially when it comes to labor market discrimination. For example, there are a number of ethnic and racial um, penalties, you could say, and that's demonstrated by a range of um, CV field um, studies. I'd made the point that that doesn't necessarily dem demonstrate uh, white privilege, which is also something that I have a great deal <laughs> to, to, to say about. So, for example, if, if there was a black Caribbean applicant by the name of James Campbell, I would back him against someone called Andrzej Lewandowski, who might be of Polish origin, even though he's white. And I think it's a question there. It's more about the, the culturally distant nature of the names might be more of a of more importance there. I think in terms of police community relations, I think there can be improvements to be made there. So the point is with the protests, I was quite critical of the protests, uh, but that's not to say that within the protests there were leg legitimate reservations. I think there were. I just want to kind of zero in, you mentioned some of them there. I mean, what do you think are the immediate things that the government say could do to alleviate some of the concerns about that kind of thing, about um, discrimination against people on the basis of their names or on the basis of ethnicity. I think that with the labour, in terms of the labour market, I do think there should be an expansion of name blind initiatives, whether that's the public sector, private sector, even you know third sector. I think that moving towards that, you know, that name name blind structure in recruitment procedures, I think that that would be beneficial. And I think it's ultimately about adopting measures that help the economy move into a more meritocratic direction. I also feel that when there are racially and religiously um, motivated grievances, you could say, uh, within the workplace. I think there should be more pressure on companies, firms, public sector organisations to resolve those internal disputes effectively. So, for example, if those cases were then to be uh, moved on to employment courts, employment tribunals, 
and the complainant actually wins that case against the company or organization, I do think there should be a almost a register, you could say, which clearly states the company and the individual involved in those cases. Then you might see that people might be under a bit more pressure to resolve them properly internally before it gets to that stage. So there are things that can be done, and there's there there, there is an opportunity to introduce more robust anti-discrimination laws. I think that in terms of healthcare, we need to be honest with ourselves. While diversity can be an enriching, it does bring complications. And I think in terms of health. When you have a diverse population, there's a diversity of health needs. And I think that needs to be acknowledged within our healthcare structures. So it could be a case that we have a more localized approach to uh, health and social care on that front. Um, and I think that the report actually recommends that. So I think that, that that's quite good because the reality of the matter is particular problems surrounding health, they may be pr more prevalent within particular communities. And that needs to be reflected in those local health plans. I think in terms of policing, I think that there really needs to be improvements to be made in terms of police community relations, especially when it comes to areas which are predominantly black British, particularly people of black Caribbean origin. And I get uh, that's ultimately the legacy of the ridiculous and disgraceful investigation following the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence. That happened a long time ago, but that's not to say that, you know, if you just say to people, oh, that happened a while ago, you should just forget about it. I, I don't buy into that at all. I think we need to take a more mature approach. I think that needs to cover the London Metropolitan Police, but also the West Midlands, Greater Manchester, even Avon and Somerset, which covers Bristol. And I think there is an opportunity to involve community groups and civic associations more in order to create a more effective neighbourhood policing model. And that is where I'm ultimately critical of you know, for example, the coalition government, which made quite serious cuts to frontline policing. I don't think that was particularly helpful. So there are things that can be done. And I think there's that there are opportunities to make further improvements in these areas, whether it's the labour market, healthcare or policing. I wonder what you think the, kind of continuing from what you're just talking about, the report has a real kind of flurry of recommendations in terms mm. of different groups and kind of task forces and that kind of thing to resolve these things and I mean I'm naturally personally it's, maybe it's just my own political outlook but I'm a bit mm. skeptical about kind of initiatives driven from the center um, or, or sort of initiative itis um, from the center how how much do you think the is the role of the state to try and moderate relationships between different communities of people how much do you think that's going to evolve naturally over time or are they kind of symbiotic? I think that I think that's a really good question where I do feel people need to be realistic when it comes to their expectations of the state. Now, the reality of the matter is that whether, you know, however much the state does, whether it's the labour market, housing, health, policing, the fact that 63% of dependents up to 15 years of age within black caribbean communities are living in lone parent households that means there needs to be very serious discussions to be had within communities that's that's what it boils down to now the state for example it, it could help to fund social initiatives which are just you know clearly of a pro-family character that could even involve um you know experienced parents leading those projects you know helping uh, new parents bed in 
and that could be a case where communities which are more at risk of family breakdown, those projects can take place, particularly in those areas. But ultimately, we're looking for a more communitarian approach. And I think, you know, someone I'm quite closely associated with that, uh, the, the sort of blue labour line of thinking. I don't think you can just look to the state to resolve all your problems. There needs to be a communitarian approach. So it's more about empowering civic associations, community groups, um, people living in local communities who have a stake in those communities to really bring about those positive social and economic outcomes. So I, I think that would be my answer to that. Sorry, to uh, what, no what, um, what sort of organisations do you have in mind when you talk about community organisations? Are mm. we talking about religious organisations? Um, I'm not sure. What sort of, how would you could you give some examples of the kind I, of I, I think so I think I think for example you do have community centers who which do great work um, in, in local communities in terms of representing them um, increasing health awareness so I think naturally with the COVID-19 pandemic I think that the fact that we have a very centralized model of governance i don't think that was helpful because when you have unique problems and needs in local communities where i do feel people with local expertise and knowledge they're better served and better positioned really um to respond to the to, to those uh problems so i think i think a fine example there you look at the orthodox heredi communities in london completely cut off from mainstream communication. That's part of their religious observance. Now, if you have people who understood that maybe earlier on in the pandemic, uh, then perhaps there wouldn't have been such problems in terms of COVID-19 transmission within, within those particular communities. So the point I'd have there, whether it could be faith groups, it can be more, more secular community centers. I, I, I think even peer, the, the sort of youth outreach groups, I think that would be, particularly helpful because ultimately as, as I said this is about the state ultimately empowering those entities to do good work and the common good as opposed to the state trying to do everything. And you mentioned just to come back to something you mentioned earlier you're talking about how you're a bit concerned that American style mm. racial politics is kind of being imported into the UK and I mean observing things over there it does seem as though they are in almost in a different world, mm. well, a very different world to us. I mean, I saw something the other day about separate graduation ceremonies for different ethnicities at American universities and stuff. And to me, this is it's the kind of antithesis of the civil rights movement. It's defining everyone as part of a kind of group identity. How far down that track do you think the UK is? Because the polling I've seen various places suggest we're not actually anything like as polarized or extreme in our views mm. as um you know as across the pond no i i agree i, I don't think we're we're not quite as bad as the <laughs> you know situation in the united states in terms of the degree of racial and cultural polarization there uh, which is a crying shame uh, for the united states but i i do sense that when you look at the anti-racist industry or the pro-diversity lobby in Britain, there are segregationist worldviews embedded within those movements. I think we have, we have a fine example where the BBC's diversity chief has said that Luther, 
uh, was it authentically black enough? Because he didn't have enough black friends. So, so this is this is the character played by Idris Elba. Yeah, yeah. I keep referring to Idris Elba, not to the no, not Martin. Martin no, no, sorry. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, yeah. I, I think there you have that situation. Oh, you know, someone is not authentically black enough because he doesn't have enough black friends, or he doesn't eat enough Caribbean food, and I just feel. Listen, I think black people, black British people, represent us. It's a tiny part of the wider British population. So if they're living outside the core cities, then there is a good chance that their network is going to be predominantly non-black. That doesn't make them less authentically black. Indeed, these could be people who take great pride in their cultural heritage, but just for ge just shared geographical location reasons, their networks may be predominantly non-black. And, and I do feel that sense of, you do hear people in the anti-racist industry say, uh, uh, you know, pe people shouldn't really contribute to this debate unless they're of a particular racial or ethnic background. That is deeply exclusionary. That is racist behavior in my view. The only way you can make progress in terms of social cohesion is that is if you adopt an inclusive approach to those discussions as opposed to being exclusionary in your appetites. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Sure. I mean, I what you're saying there also, I think, reminded me of what you were saying earlier about the kind of BAME acronym mm. in the sense that, you know, the term Black Britain probably obscures more than it describes. I mean, mm. you could talk about someone of Somali heritage or something, mm. would they have in common necessarily with someone of Jamaican heritage? No, absolutely. Color of their skin. It just seems bizarre. To I agree. Me. I think. I think. I think that ultimately you have that. There's those ideas of political blackness which go back decades. Um, yeah. Where ultimately there's these efforts to cultivate pan minority solidarity under the banner of shared black resistance to rally against racial discrimination in the UK. And that included um, Asian people as well, though, didn't it? That included, and it was very interesting because even back then you had inter British intellectuals of Asian origin who felt that the acronym in itself was giving undue prominence to people of black Caribbean origin. 
uh, interestingly. So, uh, and that, 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 and I think that was a fair point. Now, you hear about the black community, it, and you correctly mentioned, even if you just took people of black Caribbean origin and people of black African origin, there's, there's major differences in terms of how settled they are in terms of duration. People of black African origin are more likely to be uh, recently arrived, you could say. And they, they view Britain very differently uh, as separate ethnic categories. So uh, uh, when compared to people of black Caribbean origin, people of black African origin, they're more likely to have a positive view of race relations. Uh, they're likely to have more confidence in British public institutions, and they're less likely to be of the view that Britain has a fundamentally racist society. Now that could be the case that people of black African origin, they're coming from societies where political corruption are very serious issues. There's a great deal of intense social fragmentation, and th there's, there's a, broader, a broader instability. So, so they have naturally positive orientations towards British democracy. While people of Black Caribbean origin, they're more likely to come from more stable multi-party multi democracies. They're more likely to have been born in the UK and raised in the UK. So their frame of reference is more British specific. Uh, so naturally, they may be more critical. They might have a more naturally negative orientation towards British democracy. So you have all these different dynamics within the Black British population. As you say, even the label Black African, there could be a very big difference in terms of how an established Christian migrant of Ghanaian origin might view British society when compared to a more recently arrived Somali refugee who follows Islam. Yet both would come into the a broader Black African category, and I think it really that tells that it tells you of the importance of disaggregation. Because if you don't if you don't take on that level of disaggregation, you won't be, be you won't be able to identify where particular problems lie when it comes to looking at different ethnic groups. Do you think though, just to kind of play devil's advocate here, do you think there's a risk that if you kind of point at model minorities or Mm. You know, you say, oh, well, this ethnic minority is doing is group is doing very well at school and mm. they're entering the professional classes. Then that can be used as a stick to beat other groups and say, well, well, these people are, are, you know, are getting on fine. Mm. So what are you complaining about? Well, we live in a competitive society, so it might be the case that certain people need to raise their game. Uh, that there is just the fact that some, uh, that, that, but that that's what it, it could, a lot of it down, is down to migratory backgrounds. So, for example, British Indian success in contemporary Britain, much of that is down to first generation migrants that for example came from Gujarat, medical professional, uh, medical professionals who entered the, who entered seamlessly into NHS roles. Uh, then you had East, uh, East African Indians who fled the aggressive processes of Africanization. They were expelled from countries such as Uganda, but they were the backbone of those economies. So they had a great deal of business acumen and entrepreneurial spirit the moment they came to the UK. So in a sense, it set the foundations for current day British Indian success. While you have other ethnic groups, uh, such as people of Pakistani and Bangladeshi origin, if you look at the patterns of migration there, they're more likely to come from rural, deprived, poorly educated areas in Azad Kashmir, in Pakistan and Silet in Bangladesh. So it's very important to look at those, you know, those patterns of migration, how that can influence um, economic and social trajectory uh, when it comes to further generations. But yeah, in truth, it's very clear that some ethnic minority groups are doing better than others. And I think it's important to have an open debate about why that's the case. Now, family structures can be quite important. Some ethnic groups, 
children are far more likely to belong to stable two-parent households. That's not the case for other ethnic minority groups. And if we can't have those discussions, then we cease to be a mature democracy. Moving on from the kind of race report, I wonder, you said before you're more of the kind of into the, the sort of blue labour mm. tradition of politics, which was obviously sort of coined by Morris Glasman about mm. 10, 15 years ago. I mean, you look at the Labour Party now, I mean, is this a party that someone like you feels comfortable supporting? I oh, know, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't voted for the Labour Party for some time. Uh, but I, I, I refuse to vote for the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Uh, being a member of a religious minority, I wasn't sure I was very comfortable with voting for a party that was facing widespread allegations of institutionalised anti-Semitism. But it, it was deeper than that. I felt that over recent years, Labour really adopted this liberal cosmopolitan philosophy it's almost the, the sort of global villager, you know, the, the sense that you, know, you are a world citizen, uh, that you don't have more of a loyalty to your fellow national citizens. If I say that now, I'd be accused of being a far right nationalist. <laughs> and I think it's really, I think it's that acceleration of tribal identity politics, where all too often you have Labour politicians, they prioritise niche identitarian interests. Uh, and they neglect the bread and butter. And the reality of the matter is uh, a, a Labour Party which neglects the bread and butter, when we, what we mean by that, it's things such as workers' rights, um, things such as how do you create more positive employer-employee relations, um, how do you strengthen the rights of tenants, for example, when it comes to housing, <laughs> but then, more generally, you can talk about these issues, but if you really want people to progress in life, you have to talk about families and communities. And I feel that all too often that's really being lost on the left, where I think for the sake of being overly inclusive, they don't want to really engage with the fact that there are certain family structures, which are, to put it crudely, more productive when it comes to creating more positive youth outcomes, whether that's school attainment, personal development, cognitive development, mental and physical well-being. Uh, now, this is seen to be hugely controversial. People don't even want to engage with these kind of discussions. Uh, you're going to have to if you want to win a general election in modern day Britain, because uh, generally the mainstream has small, small C conservative values. They do feel that one's family can be hugely influential in their life chances. And I think if there's an over, if there's a, a prevailing obsession with racial identity, um, I almost feel that with, with the transgenderism, I feel there's almost an obsession there on the left. And just for many people in the mainstream, they just can't relate to it. You're just, you're talking about things that for many, it doesn't really have an impact on people's everyday lives. And that's where I feel Labour is going desperately wrong yeah there seems to be a tendency especially on the kind of very online left which is a creature mm. of its own that Absolutely. if you don't think that these issues are the number one priority that you're that you actually oppose them for example so i for example i'm extremely i'm very much in favor of transgender rights and, and so on but i don't mm. think it's the top political priority facing this country and i don't think those two are mutually exclusive positions 
at all. But I think, like you say, like Labour seems to be just getting, often seem to have got bogged down in what to many voters seem to be peripheral issues. Mm. Having said that, I mean, let's say you're sitting in uh, Keir Starmer's office now and you've got five minutes. What would you say are the kind of core things? What, what should be his pitch to the electorate? And we'll come on to the Hartlepool by-election, which has got a very immediate one there, but just to the, to the whole of the UK. Mm. I, I think that's a great question, John. I think that <laughs> Starmer's got his, he's got his fair share of problems. There's no getting away from that. And I think that his back, some of his backbenchers are very unhelpful, by the way, with some of the statements they come Putting out. Mildly. Yeah. yeah, but I, I think Sakir's problem is that a more patriotic Labour Party would do well with the electorate, it would do better than it has previously. But I don't think he's the man to lead that project. I just think it comes across as rather... <laughs> I would go as far as saying that there's, that there's an authenticity deficit there. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, I, I, and I, I think whether that's because he supported the party's disastrous second referendum policy, uh, and quite recently, he was, he was still arguing for the late, uh, the UK's continued membership of the European Medicines Agency, which I don't think was a very, is a very popular view right now. But I, I think you hear Sakir talk about patriotism, how he's patriotic. It doesn't come across as very convincing. Uh, I, I think that I would... Uh, uh, but that's the problem, though. You could advise him be more patriotic, but if it doesn't, if it's not convincing, then it's not going to go very far. But I think Labour more generally, I think they adopted a more pro-family, pro-community message. Uh, I think that would go down well with people who believe in those institutions. They really do. But they do have that scepticism in terms of what the state is capable of. Uh, many people who are communitarian, they're family-oriented and community-spirited, they're not necessarily statist in their appetites. And I think that's an important point to make. Uh, but, but more generally, would I advise him to suspend certain backbenches? I probably would, but it wouldn't go down very well. And I just don't think he'd have the stomach for it. I think the likes of Nadia Whitcomb, Zara Sultan, I think even Dawn Butler at times, she's made statements in the, in the House of Commons where she's ordered the UK government to take uh, its knee off the neck of black, Asian, ethnic minority people which I think is essentially weaponizing the killing of George Floyd in the United States in the British context. This is deeply unhelpful for Labour, but Sakir, he has his problems, but he's also in a very difficult position. I think anyone who is like, anyone who's Labour leader right now, they'd have their work cut out. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that there's a tendency to, it could be easy to pin the blame on him for mm. very deep-rooted issues. Absolutely, yeah. Although he did choose to be in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. So to an he extent, did. he has to carry the can for that. And Agreed. like you say, for the European policy especially, mm. that massively cost them. And he was the architect of that. No, absolutely. So it's a bit of column A and a bit of column B. I, I think on the patriotism thing, my sort of, again, slightly playing devil's advocate, is it's a bit like the Tories in the NHS. The aim is maybe is to neutralise a tax rather than mm. to pretend that you're, you know, mm secretly John Bull in under that the sort of lawyerish yeah. exterior but the authenticity problem I think it's the authenticity problem which is the big the big one for him yeah. in, the, in trying to come across as something he's not people perceive him as being a bit fake whereas Boris yeah. for all his faults is seen as being someone who's jolly and authentic and is authentically himself 
I think so. I think uh, Boris, for all his flaws, and he has his fair share of them, um, he seemed to be, at least he tries to see the best in Britain. And he believes that in the post-Brexit context, Britain can do well. And I think that's a huge problem for Sakir because he was the chief architect of the second referendum policy, it would be very difficult now for him to convince the lecturer that he has an uplifting, positive post-Brexit vision. So even if he was to adopt that, which I still think he could, even if he was to do so, he's really got plenty of work to do because it feels like, it feels like for many people in the Labour Party, including him, Brexit is something to be tolerated, not something to be embraced and to be built upon. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think one of the one of the big problems they've got is that no one in the country believes they are the, they're the party who's going to go out there and really go out to bat for Britain. Yeah, and trade deals and so on and stuff like that. I, I agree. I, people, listen, the, the mainstream British public they don't want a rabidly nationalist party in government, but they do want a part. I, I think they want a party that will at least see the good in Britain. And they, they're quite optimistic in terms of utilising that good to great effect uh, in the post-Brexit context. And I do feel that Labour at the moment, they're not quite in that space, unfortunately. Do you think that some of the problems they're facing are actually less... I mean, obviously, there's a big chunk of it that's Corbyn, that's the, the internal sort of Byzantine mm. internal rules that let someone like Corbyn be elected. But how much of it is to do with a much broader problem for centre-left parties in a kind of post-industrialised Western societies that their raison d'etre isn't really there anymore? They need to they need to find a role, don't they? They do, and I, I think that Labour's facing this problem where it's trying to unite pro-Brexit, culturally conservative, working-class voters in the provinces with more you know metropolitan socially liberal city dwellers who are also younger in terms of demographic and that is very difficult i, I always felt that labor's best approach was to accept the uh, result of the june 2016 uk referendum on eu membership and to say to young but have a pro-youth agenda for post-brexit britain i felt that approach would have been more sensible but I almost, because the reality of the matter is, I think it, it's something that, this is, when I was young, I used to vote for the Labour Party. They weren't getting in, but you just have to accept that. You know, being part of a mature citizen is accepting electoral losses. And I felt that, that that could have been a positive message that the Labour Party could have put forward to say, we're going to accept the result, but what we're going to do for post-Brexit Britain is invest more in our young people, whether it's skills, apprenticeships, trying to provide more affordable housing. I think many young people, especially in urban areas, they're actually quite worried about levels of crime. So it's quite interesting there that maybe adopting quite a strong conservative approach on crime, boosting police numbers, that, that would go down well with quite, quite a lot of young people who live in urban working class areas. So I felt that, I really felt they missed a trick, that, 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 if I'm being completely honest. But uh, as you say, uh, this is a problem we're seeing in other countries. I think the SPD in Germany is seriously running out of steam. It, it genuinely has. Uh, but being in politics, you have to, part of that is think about fresh and new ideas. You know, how do you come up with innovative approaches? 
for the greater good and winning elections because ultimately politics politics is about winning you know you can be as ideolo ideologically you know pure as you'd like you know being a purist if it doesn't get you in government to implement those politi policies that help to improve people's lives then why are you there yeah definitely a question for um the last labor leader um if nothing else. for sure for sure and just to finish off Raki, because our time is unfortunately running out um what's next in the pipeline for you i believe you're working on a new book I am indeed. So this this book touches on a lot of the things that we discussed uh, in this conversation, where it mainly focuses on how the left quite often gets ethnic minorities wrong in the UK. Now, I've seen a number of people when they're talking about Labour's patriotic rebranding project. Oh, this will alienate swathes of ethnic minority voters in Britain as if they don't have any sense of loyalty to their own country, which is actually quite patronising quite bigoted in a way, actually, John, I'll go as far as saying that. And it's quite interesting, you talk about those small C conservative values, you know, the importance of family, uh, the value of even marriage as an institution, the importance of high trust, stable local communities. These are, these are values that run deep in non-white communities across Britain. Uh, and I do feel it, it, it's, it's, one of, it, it's one of two things, really. It's either the case that they're ignorant of these small C conservative values in ethnic minority communities. When I, mean, when I mean they, it's the sort of liberal cosmopolitans within the broader political left, or they're actually using ethnic minorities to put forward their liberal cosmopolitan agenda, knowing that they have those small C conservative values. The cynic in me, thinks that th th there might be a degree of truth in, in, that, in that second uh, point there. But I ultimately, the, the thrust of the book is that if the left actually adopted more patriotic, um, more, uh, if, it, if, it, if it adopted a, an inclusive patriotism based on family, community, responsibility, and reciprocity, then that wouldn't alienate lots of ethnic minority voters more than anything it, it might actually strengthen their relationship and dare i say it might bring back ethnic minority voters that in recent times have shifted more towards the conservatives and have moved away from labor so i think ultimately it's that it's that idea of having a multi-racial nation state and it's the view that the nation state that is the upper limit when it comes to democratic legitimacy but talking about the importance of family and community, I think that would be a very effective route for the left. But at the moment, there's too many on the left that, as I said, they're pursuing these niche identitarian interests, which I think it's backfiring for the party in terms of electoral popularity. And it's not doing it's the party much favours with its relationship with a number of ethnic and racial minority communities either. I like the phrase a multiracial nation state. I think I might steal that. For, uh, well, no, so I'll be writing in some of our upcoming pieces for Catholics <laughs> as well. For sure. All right, Raki, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Us. Absolute pleasure. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the pages of Capex very soon, I'm sure. Cheers. Thank you for having me, John.